Big Easier podcast by The Unmistakables. Welcome to the diversity conversation that everyone can learn from. We interview guests from the world of business, culture and arts about the work they're doing to make the world a more inclusive place. I'm Asad. And I'm Ben. And in this episode, we're asking, how can we become anti-racist? We're going to be speaking with Asma Shah, the founder and CEO of You Make It which is a charity tackling unemployment among young women by helping them to access tools, networks, experience and confidence to develop their careers and transform their lives. She's also on the Mayor of London's Equalities, Diversity and Inclusion Board. So this year, Asma set up an anti-racism initiative that's called You Change It. So we're going to ask her a bit about that and talk about how can we really become anti-racist, the two hyphenated words that's on everyone's mind. There's definitely, definitely a lot to get into with this one. So let's get started. Making diversity everyone's business. So, uh, Asma, welcome to the Speak Easier. As with every guest, we start with a word association game. Just to warm us up, it's a cold and wet day in London. So why don't we start with a few words? How about diversity? Inclusion. COVID. Isolation. London. Cold. (laughs) <laughs> very, very, very apt. So Asma, welcome to the Speakeasia. Thanks for joining us. It'd be great to hear from you, like who, who you are, how do you describe yourself to other people? And that can be as broad as you like. That could be like who you are, what you do or what you stand for, what your story is. Question's yours. Okay, so I'm Asma, as you've mentioned, and I'm the founder and chief executive of an organisation called You Make It which is an empowerment organisation for black and brown women to help them become more confident, networked and experienced and entitled to happy and productive and integrated lives in our city of London, which is, of course, fantastically diverse, but it's also one in which there are growing gaps between rich and poor and black and white. And so I would I'd probably describe myself as an activist. OK, can I ask you straight up? So you said... Black and brown women. You didn't say BAME women, you said black and brown. Tell us why you use that word. I just always have used the word black and brown when I talk about myself and black people. That's what I've always done. When I have to write funding applications, I use the word BAME because that's what's been expected. And I know the term BAME now has become under scrutiny, but actually black and brown to me is what it is. If your colour is black or brown, you are typically visibly discriminated against yeah okay and um, where where did this come from where did you make it how did this all happen it happened back in 2011 started from the very kitchen table that I'm now sitting on now from this very kitchen um for a few reasons so the first reason is that my mother who was an immigrant from Pakistan had passed away of cancer and that got me thinking quite long and hard about her start in this country as a Pakistani woman, the journeys of me and my three older sisters and how we'd started from a very underprivileged position back in a council estate in Peckham but we'd all managed to do well relatively speaking in terms of education and employment and I thought about what it's like for women who come from those backgrounds are discriminated against but don't necessarily have the kind of mother I had who was very inspiring and very pushy when it came to breaking down barriers and progressing in life. So I guess when she died, I thought long and hard about our journeys and I wanted to do something, I guess, in her honour. In a way, it was a grief project. 
Second to that, my career, I'd spent largely in the cultural and creative industries, which are phenomenally racist and classist. And I decided that I didn't really want to work in those shiny buildings anymore, trying to fit in um, and being treated continuously like an imposter. I really wanted to work with women like me um, and to create my own organization with a culture that was very values led. And thirdly, Actually, there are four reasons. So thirdly, um, 2011, when I set this up, was the beginning of austerity. And it was the coalition government, Lib Dems Conservative. And it was very, very clear to me that the government agenda was absolutely to pull back support for those who were more vulnerable because of race, as an example. And I just knew that women like me, as I was 25 years ago, risked falling through the cracks if they weren't supported in some way. And, and the fourth reason is I mentioned that I grew up in Peckham, but for my whole adult life, I've lived in Bethnal Green, but in a really gentrified bit. So just two minutes away from Broadway Market. And I had been watching what I feel the devastating effects of gentrification are, which is that you have lots of posh people move into the hood. They, lots of opportunities pop up, but people who've been here forever have no idea of how to access those opportunities. And I guess the program I set up and the work that I do is very much about trying to find ways for women for my area of London to access opportunities that pop up as a result of gentrification. Okay, so there's there's a lot there's a lot there to unpack. I think yes, based on some of the work we've we've done, we could go anywhere. We could go in <laughs> into grief. What my um, we could go into having uh, well, I, I have an Indian heritage, and I lost my dad, and that changed the trajectory of my life mm. as well. But I, I guess I wanted to just touch on your experience in the culture and creative industry, purely because a lot of the work that we do as a business is being a creative and cultural business um, that is trying to change some of those feelings that you had. And when I set up the business, lots of people, what I called myself the Pied Piper of people of colour, who approached me and said, oh, you know, I've felt like this for a long time. Could could you just talk us through that? Like, where did that come from? And how has that driven you? My experiences, and it was by accident, really, I must say that I ended up working majority in the cultural and creative industries. I'm not just a brown woman, but we also come from a different class background. My mum did well eventually, had a really great career in education. But, you know, I would consider that formally in this country, in this city, we're working class. My mum was on benefit. So, you know, the idea of working in the cultural and creative industries had never really occurred to me. You know, it's not necessarily um, an industry that is representative of class when you think about the country, let alone racial diversity. So anyway, I accidentally fell into that into those sectors and I was always treated really badly if I'm honest somehow I would find out in the organizations I worked in that I was commonly paid six or seven thousand pounds less than my white peers who were working at the same level as me sometimes more junior than me so people in this country talk a lot and they should do about the gender pay gap but there is also very clearly an ethnic pay gap So if you're a woman and then you're also a woman of colour, when it comes to pay, you are just not treated fairly. And that happened. I used to find that out in almost every organisation I worked in. I was being paid less. And then there were other examples of, you know, being given four times more work than your white colleagues, being appraised really, really well, but never being given the opportunity for promotion. And that would just happen systematically. In fact, I remember once working for a major broadcaster and the job that I'd been doing, which was on a contract basis, 
was going to be turned into a permanent position. And I went to the director and said, I'm obviously going to go for it. I've been well appraised for the contract role that I'd been doing. And her response was, you're good, Asma, but you're good down here. And she physically patted the floor, director of a major broadcaster. And so my experiences of that sector were basically horrific. Once I broke my leg working for a flagship arts venue and um, I was told within days of breaking my leg by my manager, you're going to have to just work through being sick because no one else is going to have to pick up your workload, which I did. Because I think when you enter those spaces and you don't see you, you feel so grateful almost to be in those spaces that you're willing to do anything really to stay and you don't understand your self-worth and you kind of almost don't clock that when it's happening, it's about race. It's only as I've gotten older that I've looked back and talked to other people of colour, black and brown people who say to me, they've had the same experience, you know, working through sick, being given too much to do, never getting promoted, not being paid the same. So all of those experiences in those sectors have made me I'm an activist, so you know you get angry about something, but what you also then do is use that anger to create positive change. And I guess that what we do through You Make It, a lot of our women want to work in the cultural creative industries, is we do as much as we can to ensure they have the confidence and entitlement so that when they enter those spaces, they challenge more than someone like I challenged the status quo. The first word that really struck me that you said, you said it right at the beginning, was confidence. I'd really like to explore that as well, because we've heard in listening exercises we've done with businesses, uh, people say, well, I don't understand why this person didn't just speak up. If they had something to say, why didn't they just say it? And you talked about being in these shiny buildings. Is confidence training something that businesses should give uh, people to allow them to speak out and speak up? Can I just go back to something, actually, which lends to your point? I would enter those spaces relatively confident. I would speak in meetings, and this is where I want to talk about microaggressions. I would speak in those meetings initially, but whenever I spoke, suddenly everyone around me were doodling. When my white peers would speak, my colleagues from the same team would speak, and actually repeat what I'd said because I do talk sense, everyone would be looking, great point, great point. So actually, I don't think it's about us necessarily not speaking it's about us not being heard and I think more important than confidence training within all of those organizations is some really hard-hitting anti-racism training and for them to understand that you know you don't have to use the p word or the n word to be a racist there are lots of microaggressions which exist in those places of work which slowly reduce the level of confidence someone like me might have once I've entered into those spaces, like slowly you withdraw, slowly you think, actually, if people aren't listening, am I talking, am I talking sense? It's only now the ripe old age of what I turned 47 the other day that I understand I always speak sense. And actually, what I was experiencing was a form of racial bullying Mm. in all of those spaces. Does it start with something as basic as your name as well? Because when I see your name, I'd say it differently in my head, but I completely noticed that it, when, when you first spoke, the, the A at the beginning of your name sounds more like a U. Have you yeah. ever heard that? Has anyone ever said it right at work? It's very, very, so my name is pronounced Asma. It's not complex. And actually, in terms of the sounds, us and mer, they are, they are sounds that are in the English language. So they sh- people should be able to repeat my name as I say it. But actually what commonly happens is I say asthma, they say asthma, they rename me. And mm. it doesn't matter how many times I correct 
In fact, I've probably corrected very little in my life because it's become exhausting. Now I've begun to correct and I make a real point, which is it's, so I'm exhausted again because I've begun to correct again. But I think it's just a laziness. It's a laziness and it's a disrespect to not call somebody by their name. I think, you know, if I was, I think someone was saying to me, God, the names in like, I never watched it, Game of Thrones, but so complex. But white people, English people seem to pronounce their names properly. <laughs> and uh, I just find it a really, yeah, do people ever say my name properly? Very, very rarely. If you're from up north, you're generally forgiven because I think there is a slightly different way, Usma, like it comes out as Usma. But um, I think generally it's a, it's a laziness. It's interesting you, you say that because I've been chronicling on Instagram this week. I've been called Asda twice. Oh, um, I've been called Asda before. <laughs> okay, so and, you, and Osama, and Osama. Okay, okay, so you you've you've had that as, <laughs> as well because I notice, and I think it's something to do with twenty twenty that before I would just say, oh, whatever, like it's fine, I'll get on with it. And then now I'm like, no, do you know what? I've got to say something yeah. to the point where, but I think it's come from the fact that I'm running a business and I've got these three letters now that say like, I am a CEO. And I think it like, I, I think it's just, it, you don't have to be at that level to say that. But throughout my career, I haven't felt empowered maybe to say, well, that that's not my name. And partially because I think I've anglicized my name in, and, and I've been a little bit complicit in, in that, um, which you just made me think, yeah. I don't have an answer, but hmm. Just okay. explain, just explain yeah. that. Said. Just explain how you've anglicised your name. Well, so like I, my 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 parents, every well, my mum and my siblings called me Usud. That's how you pronounce my name, Usud. Yeah. And I, I remember so vividly being five years old in reception and the teacher coming over and going Assad, and I was like, don't know who that is. And then as time's gone on, I've made it easier. To, for other people because I'm like well I've just got to do that and then when I see it written down as Asda I'm like but that's point wrong and then when I see my surname misspelled with extra vowels in there I'm like you've, you've actively had to make this worse mm. but like, I, I just I don't know how you've got there and I don't know I just you know I've, I've, I've yeah I could go on for ages but yeah it's just really so, really thing. so Asad it's really interesting the name thing because when I got onto this call I was like well you're definitely called Asad that's how I would say it and then I was thinking I wonder if your colleague is going to say Asad yeah yeah um, yeah, you say, yeah. Do you say Asad Ben I know that it's wrong, you know, okay. because, but I also know how he introduces himself. And, you know, it's like I've got a, a Norwegian friend that everyone calls Andre, but it's Endre. And, oh. and, and, and like, if I said it to my friends, they'd wonder, like, you know, what planet I've just stepped off, because everyone just calls him Andre. But it's just, it's a thing. I think it's uh, when we go back to the point about confidence, it's that first step into the shiny building. And if yeah. you're misnamed immediately, then does it affect your confidence? Is that typical? Is that what you see? Uh, I think, what does it do? I think just going back to the point you were even making, Asad, about the non-correcting, I think part of that is that we have been trained in this country to make things really comfortable for white people. So if they can't get our name right, we're not to really kick up a fuss. And I think what happens when you enter those new places of work and you're immediately called asthma, asthma, I just can't say it. And it's so, it's so difficult, it's so complex, is you're just, it's all about you being there, making it soothing the experience for the white person in the workplace. And I think that's what it's about. I don't think, and it's about, yeah, you have to kind of do, to your point, Ben, I think a lot of it is about 
you don't see many people like yourself. So you kind of feel straight away that you must mask your identity, you know, oh, let them call me what they want. You, you mask everything. You make everything easier for the other person. What, what, what I have learned, and I think it's specifically been, it's been more acutely, I've been made more acutely aware of it, or I have become more acutely aware because I've actively done it, is through the unmistakables, I've been working with more brown people. And when I was working in PR, I, I, it was very rare. There was maybe two or three people who had also anglicized their names so we kind of had this complicit ease that we were yeah. spreading around and then it's you know we did we did a workshop and my sister was on it and my sister's like yeah us and I, I could kind of see people go that's different like where do we go with that and I felt really uncomfortable and then I was like why do I feel uncomfortable about that I shouldn't it's, it's I think it's what we've said which or what we yeah. was just talking about is that thing of like make things comfortable for, for, for others, them yeah. So, Asma, you've talked about anti-racism, and I believe that with You Change It, you've developed an anti-racist or anti-racism program. Could you tell us a bit about that? So we designed it and have begun to deliver it in lockdown while in parallel doing our core work, which is our empowerment work for young women. Um, You Change It has been designed based on my lived experience and that of one of my colleagues, and it is, it's not one of those unconscious bias training initiatives, which have been knocking around for years, but just don't make any difference. Can, can we just state that Asma did the air quotes unconscious bias, which I think implies a little bit about how you feel about them. So yeah. Well, they don't work and they don't get to the nub of the problem, which is that this country has been built on racism the science of racism, the science of racism was used to expand and dominate across the world in terms of empire, trade in slaves, and create havoc for natives, and then consequently the diaspora. And there's never really been anything in this country that I think has wholesale tried to dismantle racism. Our programme is designed to activate the emotional and intellectual capacity of individuals so it become actively anti-racist as opposed to going yeah maybe sometimes I do show bias oh yeah I should think about it we go deeper so you change it the first module if I can just run through the modules if we've got time yeah please please do I mean there's I want to come back to the wholesale dismantling of racism but that's maybe another episode okay so uh so you change it the first mo- there it's all delivered by zoom because of covid but I think even post-covid I'm going to continue to deliver by Zoom because, frankly, it's quite a triggering, difficult programme to deliver. And I would quite like the safety of having Zoom (laughs) between me and people who we're working with. So the first module is designed to get people to develop an emotional connection to the experiences of people like us and what we go through when we enter the workplace um, and outside of the workplace when it comes to race and discrimination and racial assault, whether really, really physical or, as I've mentioned before, just through those microaggressions. So um, the first module is called The Stories Write Themselves, and they're very candid, authentic interviews with myself and one of my facilitators, a black man. And people are given the opportunity to just ask us, post those interviews about our lives and our experiences and what we would have liked to have seen happen when we've experienced things where white people have witnessed it. The second module is just talking about the the history of racism in this country and how it's been used 
to continuously oppress black and brown people is called then and now. And that's the kind of history lesson that you just never got at school <laughs> and we still don't get at school. So, you know, the failures to dismantle racism in this country are because actually there's been some really proactive work not to teach in the national curriculum the true history of empire and its impact. So then and now looks at our history as a country and how the history of racism continues to impact on our lives when it comes to education, health, uh, poverty and crime. The third module is called Check Your Privilege, and that's much more of a focus on white people having to think about what their whiteness means that they have benefited from and what it has denied people like us. And it's very uncomfortable, that module, because it's a kind of, you just can't hide from it. If you're white, you do have certain privileges that we do not have. And part of that module, I also included in it a, a section around white fragility. So Asad, I'm absolutely sure that you, and Ben, I'm sure that you've witnessed it too, that thing that happens when you talk to somebody about an experience that you know is around race. And their immediate response is to become quite hysterical and stressed and shut down the concept that it could be about race or that they have any part to play in holding up systems of racism. So we cover, really importantly, the concept of white fragility. And for me, that's been a really, really important... I didn't know... I didn't The, the term white fragility, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but you probably are. Yeah. Robin D'Angelo, an American sociologist, has examined the reactions, the responses of white people when they're asked to talk about race and racism. And this is what she calls fragility. And I guess through our programme, what we're trying to do is to get white people to instead respond to conversations around race with fragility, respond with humility mm. and to accept that it's very possible that they're racist. It's very, very possible that they show those behaviours that I experienced in the world of work. And actually, it's possibly because they just haven't had the information around the history of this country and the likelihood that actually everyone is taught to be racist in this country. I, I, I'm, I'm smiling throughout this because when you talked about well it being uncomfortable for white people like I really want to do it I want to sit through it I want to feel that discomfort I like facing into those things but I, I'm, I'm so struck by how not that long ago you know when we had uh, Princess Meghan was new and we weren't racist you know like it was because it was so reductive it was just like you know people don't necessarily want to look at all of the layers of it they don't it's, they don't know the history but they're not necessarily willing to school themselves either. And I think that's so interesting that people can just make that decision that this isn't racist and I'm not racist without actually looking at all of those layers. Because you've spoken for some time about the modules there and you've not finished yet. You know, like there's another one to go. We want to hear about it. But it's just so fascinating that there's so much to it. There is. I'll be very quick on the last two modules. But Ben, listen, if you want to do it, I can send you. We've got some dates for individuals. Typically, we work with leadership teams. We've also got some dates for individuals. Yeah. And yes, they are challenging. But I must emphasize it's a really safe space that's created as well. So we're not, uh, people are not treated badly. They're listened to, they're responded to. It's a safe space. I'm all for being laid bare, don't worry. <laughs> the, the fourth module is called What Would You Say If? So actually, we present people, this is really tough because it involves role playing, with a bunch of scenarios that are real based, real life based scenarios that I've witnessed within the workplace where white people are finally at this stage, module four, they've got the confidence and they've got the drive and the passion to step up and speak up when they witness racism, either overtly or more covertly in the workplace. And um, that's, 
I think, brilliant. Because a lot of the time when I speak to white friends and family, they seem to say, well, you know, it's they don't have the language. Is it their place to insert themselves into conversations around race? And I think that module is really, really good at giving them the language and the experience of what does it feel like to actually speak up as opposed to silently being complicit in and not saying anything when you witness something that's so obviously around race. And then the very final module is called Activate Your Allyship. And that's where people really take a long, hard think about everything they've gone through in those modules to this point and how they're going to do things differently. And so it's all about actions, creating smart goals and making sure that you really change your practice in the world of work. Yeah, I mean, it sounds it sounds brilliant. Also, like from where where you're getting to, how do people respond? Like, have have there been any moments where people have said, oh, my, like, this is not for me? Like, do, do you get any really visceral reactions? Do you get any like centre right or right wing people on there going? you know this is a load of bollocks so I have had I'm gonna this is an interesting question actually I said I'm glad you've asked it because one experience it's a relatively new service we've been doing this for a few months but we have been busy from the start and so we've had one we've been working with one um, company's leadership team where one of the people wouldn't even look at us didn't even look at the screen didn't engage and I believe is racist but would never admit to being racist is just someone who's going to not engage with the process. And then yesterday we did a first session with another company. They've, they've only so far taken up the first session. They're still umming and ahhing about whether they're going to complete the journey. And actually it was really interesting because one of the guys in that session said, well, I don't, he's, the someone, the someone who's umming and ahhing, does he want to complete the journey? Do they want to sign up to the whole five modules? And he was like, well, you know, well, I think I am actually racist. And I was absolutely shocked at how pleased I was to hear it. I found it, I find that so much easier to work with. You know, that's the opposite of the white fragility I'm talking about, right? It's impossible that I'm racist. I'm not, I'm not. For someone just to say, I think I probably am. I've never been so happy to hear that in my life. And I thought it was just really interesting that I'm at this place in life now where I'm like, wow, that pleased me. It pleased me that somebody is saying, I think I might be racist. I'm in conflict. I don't know if I want to go through the process. I actually think he should definitely do the program because the impact on him is going to be huge because he's honest. He's, he's coming from an honest place, a non-fragile place. Is everyone racist? You know, if you were to, to if you were to bring a, a group of people together from all different backgrounds and from different countries and cultural heritages. Well, racism is about power. So I think everyone's prejudiced, but race is very specifically around power and within this country, my understanding of racism is around whiteness and the idea of white supremacy based on skin color mm. so I think everyone has the someone you know I don't know if there's a different understanding for me I think everyone has it in them to be prejudiced I don't think everybody is racist I just wonder because if we were you know if, if if there was a global client you know if you had a global brief and people flew in to do this training from all over the world and their experience in their in the country in their countries that they live in isn't one isn't even remotely close to Britain. You know, it's it's a country that didn't get touched by empire. <laughs> if you can find one, you know, like what would we find racism everywhere? 
you'd find prejudice everywhere and xenophobia everywhere, probably. But our work is particularly looking at racism within the context of whiteness and how whiteness has been used as a tool to oppress people who are not white. I wanted to ask you a bit of a personal question, if you don't mind, Asma, which is you talked about anger and how you're using anger to fuel change. That's what makes you an activist. And I've caught myself thinking, I felt a bit angry this week, like just various things have made me a bit angry and I've talked to Ben about them. And then I, I sit back and I think, well, is, you know, is anger useful and what do you do with it? And I do my meditation and all that. Like, how do you channel this? Because clearly you you have like such a drive and it's really like, I'm, I'm in awe of the work that you're doing. And so I want to know how you've learned to, to fuel that anger. I didn't for a long time. It really did take, I said, you know, you mentioned the passing of your father. I think it takes something and, and that changed your trajectory in terms of what you do professionally. So it sounds like you've already done on a large scale, it sounds like you've already done something with the anger that grief perhaps causes. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I did. I did just. I didn't do it for ten years. I got myself into a career, went up the ladder, and then I was like, uh, maybe I should reassess. So okay. I had like suppressed grief for about a decade. Okay. Not- and it, yeah, grief. Grief takes ages. Grief takes ages. Like mm-hmm. it takes ages to show itself. Well, it depends. I think if you have a more complex relationship with a parent, it takes ages for it to come out. I think if you just have a really uncomplex relationship, you just kind of go through the seven stages relatively quickly, in my experience of talking to others. But anyway, the point is, I didn't do anything with my anger for a long time. I suppressed my anger about everything that was happening to me in the sector and industry and life. And it really did take that very significant moment of my mum passing for that anger. I just was like, you know, you're on this planet for a very finite amount of time. Yeah. Do you sit with anger and let it rot you or do you basically just do something positive that's always been my I am I've always been a little bit like that so if something bad happens I do quite quickly try and flip things to see the positive and what came out of it that's that's my disposition I think it's just it's very interesting because we were talking at the beginning before we hit record about we can see each other and so that helps with the conversation and I was thinking there's no such trope as the angry brown woman there's the angry black woman trope that gets wheeled out. And then you talked about how the experiences are similar. And it just it just got me thinking because like the this view or notion of anger and then how that comes out and how that can fuel and how you use it for good, I think is is really fascinating. Can I can I just say actually, yeah, that trope of the angry black woman, I definitely get the, the I get that myself. I mean I do you? Yeah, I do. I've been I've been um Oh, she's very direct and it's said in an almost ang- really cross that I could be direct. It's almost a thing of shock that a Pakistani woman could be as direct and as honest and as confident as I now am. It's like, how very dare she? Like, I'm right. not meant to be that way. So the anger, I think I elicit anger in other people, actually, just by not fulfilling a stereotype. Um, that's interesting and and I know that I know what it means when people say you're very direct I know what they're saying to me they're saying you're aggressive when I just know that I'm absolutely not I'm just very clear Uh, I think anger is always followed by something else otherwise it's just confidence because you know I'm five foot seven and white I get angry you know probably related to grief as well and then I'm I'm the angry little man you know there's always something otherwise it's like how you call a girl bossy and you call a boy confident or assertive you know it's always it's always derogatory if yeah. you're othered in some way yeah i 100% agree 
And I just, um, but you know, going back to your point, actually, I think it's an interesting one. And I think it's a right one. Like, do I, do I get a, I'm the victim of racism by experience racism in a different way to a black person. Fact. And my experience of racism has been vicious. So, you know, it's been terrible. So it's not to minimize my experiences as, 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 uh, as a brown person. But I do think, do I get away with slightly more because actually I'm a brown woman and mm. I don't quite fit that kind of the racial uh, racist trope of angry black. We probably, I probably do get away with a bit more, actually. It's, it's, and those, those are, because when people say to me, oh, why can't we say BAME anymore? Like, when, why is, why has that happened? And, uh, it, like, it happened last week on the radio where I was asked, don't BAME people have more to think about? And I said, well, actually, like, my experience as a middle-class brown person growing up in Harrow is so different to a brown woman or a black woman or a, a Chinese person. And to then amalgamate them all, does a disservice but also the amalgamation is where like the sharing of stories happen mm. and where we all actually say oh yeah that happened to me and that's happened to me but I'm seen in a different way and and I that's the bit where I I find like these stories and I like the name of your first module which is like the stories tell themselves because there is like a link and a bridge and I, I remember studying German Turkish literature and the plight of the Turkish immigrants in Germany and I was like I had I identify with all of this, mm. this idea that you live on a bridge and you go through this like massive sense of displacement, mm. and it's all in German and it's a complete and it's the Turkish migration path. Um, so yeah, I just I don't know I'm going off on one, um, and I wanted to bring it back actually to the fact that you, I believe you sit as an advisor on the mayor's mayor of London's Equalities, Diversity and Inclusion Board. Could you talk a little bit about what that's about and what it is that you do? Yeah, so um, obviously I work with You Make It at a really, really local grassroots level in terms of the work we do with young women. But being an advisor on that board allows me to influence and feed into and help shape strategy and provision coming from the GLA that supports and seeks to empower people who would normally be overlooked, whether that's because of gender, race, class, disability, sexual orientation. So I get to have a say in how policies are shaped. And I was asked to apply for that position. And I was initially a little bit sceptical because, you know, I've worked in these big shiny buildings. It's all just going to be a talking shop. What say will I really have? They're just ticking a box, etc. But it actually is not like that. They genuinely, genuinely, Sadiq Khan, uh, and that group, Debbie Weeks Bernard is the person who is the chair of that group. She's a fantastic woman. They genuinely seek to consult with and include the views and opinions and ideas of people like me who really, really work on the ground. I don't think I could ever work for the GLA because I know full stop that I am so much suited to just doing my own thing and being on the outside of those structures. But I think to be able to influence is a fantastic thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, having been the comms director for Pride and the interactions that I had with the GLA, I, I would definitely agree with you in in terms of the backing. I guess with that, I'm I'm quite curious about what what it's called. Right, it's called the Equalities, Diversity, and Inclusion Boards. Like yeah. those are like that's a lot. And also this word like diversity, inclusion, equality. Like, do you think it's just banded around, banded around a little bit too much? I think it is 
banded around a lot within workplaces who then don't really do anything about it. So uh, I think when used by the GLA, there's a legitimacy to it because they really, really do a lot to tackle inequality and to promote equity and inclusion. I think it's banded around by other places of work really freely when they don't have a clue as to what it should actually mean in practice in terms of making workplaces fairer and more equitable for people who are not, you know, middle class, white, straight men. So I think, yes, it's banded around as a term by lots and lots of companies and organisations Many of the places I've worked in, all of the places I've worked in, you know, legally, equal opportunities, employers, but actually when it comes down to equitable practice that supports and encourages people like me, not really there within those places of work. Could, could you just help, help break that down? Because I'm sure you have people approach you and say, Asma, how do we become more diverse? How do we become more inclusive? And you've talked about equitable and and having equitable practices how do you help people understand the differences between all of this because it can even for people in the in the work every day can feel like there's always a new term to think about and a a new way of thinking so we cover it in our training you change it I know it sounds like I'm shamelessly plugging it but I am and I think it's a really really important thing to understand it's not enough to just say I believe in equal opportunities It's important to say, to look at all of your practice when it comes to recruitment, how you progress people, you retain them to make sure that you understand that not everyone starts from the same place. And if people don't start from the same place, you have to do a lot more to ensure the support and nurturing and encouragement of people who come from, you know, a place where they've been actively disadvantaged because of, in the the work that we do, colour. And I actually think it's not enough, really, for people to just kind of, which is why we've designed the program we've designed with You Change It. It's not really enough for people to just have an academic understanding of this is equity, this is inclusion, this is equality. What they really need to do is to get the fire in their belly to want to make things fairer because they understand from a humanitarian perspective that policies that discriminate are just wrong. Um, And I think that's why our work is so important. It's not just focused on the descriptions of words and the definitions, it's actually focused on shifting, transforming how a white person understands their privilege and what the lack of interrogation of that privilege has meant in terms of upholding systems of racism. Do do you think that everyone does need to be um, treated the same by, say, a line manager? Or does that line manager need to learn more about cultural nuance of the people that they employ? I think everyone should be treated with the same level of respect. But I also think that it's kind of a little bit like, you know, when people say, I don't see colour, I'm colourblind, and they don't see our difference. To to be to be fair, Ben is colourblind, but oh my, okay. You know, that, was, that was hereditary. <laughs> you know, I do see colour. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's I I, w- I want to be treated fairly and not oppressed by my manager if I had one, but I don't want to be seen as exactly the same because I am not. My experience, my lens, my life, my identity is going to mean that I see things differently and I want that to be acknowledged and seen and respected. 
Mm. It just strikes me, I mean, because we see it from the highest levels all the time. I just could not believe what I was hearing the other day when there was a discussion that there'd been, if there were a, if there were cabinet meetings anymore or COBRA meetings or whatever, you know, whatever should be happening, there was a discussion about how we're going to save Christmas during COVID. And yet, you know, the day before Eid, everyone was told they couldn't see each other. Like we were talking about Christmas in August. It sounds like a PR campaign, but it's just, you know, like when, when we hear that from the highest possible levels, what chance have we got in organisation? Mm. I agree. I mean, that's a really interesting, but also that saving Christmas is also about just saving capitalism, isn't it? it it's it's very much linked to the economy. Eid, what happens on Eid? You get maybe like a fiver or a tenner from an uncle or <laughs> Christmas is about massive spending people getting into debt and all the rest of it but I also think you're right there is this sense of you know this is a this is a this is a Christian country and Christmas is to be revered and celebrated and protected and Eid is like whatever we'll just cancel it for them I agree yeah it's about saving votes I think as much as money isn't it yeah 100%. and it's also about headlines I mean can you imagine the Daily Mail and the Express wouldn't even know where to begin with the headlines on that I mean the Daily Express would probably write their headlines about Christmas on Boxing Day but you know right Asma I'm aware we've taken much of your time and it's been really really great talking to you so if people want to find out more about um you make it and you change it where should they go so go to our website, www.you, that's Y-O-U hyphen make hyphen it.org. And I think four tabs to the right, you can click on you change it. And that explains in almost as much detail as I did um, what you can expect from taking part in our anti-racist work. But also, as I have said, we work in a really fantastic way with young black and brown women on the ground. And there are lots of opportunities for people to mentor and get involved in supporting young black and brown people through our core programs as well. Amazing. Thanks very much, Asma. Our final question, we normally ask, who would you nominate to have a conversation like this? Who do you think is another voice that should be heard? You know what? I think it would be really fantastic if you could give a spot to one of the women who's come through my program. So not someone who's, you know, on an EDI board for the mayor or, you know, 47, but a young black woman to hear about their lives and experiences in this city of London. And I wouldn't be able to specifically give you one name because mm -hmm. it's tough to do it because there are so many amazing women who we work with, but we can follow up. I, I would love, I would love for our women, their voices, their experiences to be amplified through these platforms. Great. Okay. Well, we can, we can follow up on that and um, hopefully find someone. That's been great. Thank you so much, Asma. Thank you so much. I've really loved it. Making diversity everyone's business. So how did you find that, Ben? It looks like you're going to be doing some anti-racism training. I can't wait. I can't wait to step into my uncomfort zone or discomfort zone. Um, yeah, amazing. Just like an absolute bundle of energy. It's a rainy, grey day here in South East London. And uh, that's exactly what I needed. It was so interesting to hear about that, uh, to hear about everything she said. And also just to really think about that white fragility. I think the story about the guy that wasn't ready to face that, you know, that wasn't ready necessarily to face that he was racist. I think there's just, um, it's brought up a lot of stuff that I'd like to explore more. I think I could have spoken to Asma for hours and hours. 
Yeah, I think there were so many sound bites in there, like the bit around rather than white fragility, thinking about white humility. And、mm. then the science of racism was something that I found quite eye opening. Like having done a QA with a Carla name drop,、um, mm-hmm. I thought about you know, that, that it is a science. And actually, in the day to day work that we do, taking that step back to go, these are all systems, structures, processes that take a long time to. To rework, and lots of people are looking for quick fixes for this. They want it to go away, but I don't think it is. I, I think people think it has gone away. I think people see this imaginary date when all of these things stopped. You know, like we're, we're asked to look at the British Empire in a more positive way sometimes at the moment, but we never looked at it in a negative way for long enough. You know, like,、mm. can't we? Where's the nuance? Where's the bit in the middle? Why aren't we having those conversations where it's okay to talk about? Both sides of the story, but really crucial to talk about the bit in the middle and where it's well, landed us now. In part, maybe it's because we all need to be sat at home to do this work because it is so uncomfortable to do it in person with other people. I, I just, you know, with training courses like that, I wonder how the experience would differ if you're in a, in a room with other people and you can look at them and body language is playing more of a factor.、Mm. Um, I think it's, it's a bit of a hidden blessing that we've now got another six months at home. Do you, do you think that we'd be Better off or worse off in a room together to, to take this kind of thing on? Truthfully, I think we'd be worse off.、Mm-hmm. Having done some sessions similar around diversity in person, I think people can be led by other people. And you look at body language and you look at cues. I'm no body language expert, but I think in a room, there would be more playing out. And, and one of the things I think that would really play out is in a room, normally there's glass walls, right?、Mm. And you look outside or people are looking in and that plays a factor. Whereas when you're at home, I mean, you might have that through your kids, but you don't have that as much with feeling like you're being judged. Yeah, also what Asma said that struck me was that thing about when she worked in places, when she started talking, people would stop listening. And it's so. You're so able to do that. I, I can just picture every boardroom I've ever been in long table, rectangular room, really easy not to be able to see everyone in the room when it's full.、Yeah. So it makes it easy for people to switch off and you know, check their phone under the desk and choose, be really selective about who they listen to. And I don't think we get that on screen in the same way. I think if we can see if we're not, if we're not facing forward, if we're not effectively making eye contact, we can see it. Yeah, and, but also the other way around. I think you care less about how other people are going to be responding. So I've done quite a lot of talks throughout、mm. COVID time, and I can't see everyone. I gave one yesterday to 70 people, and I could see three, and I had no idea how anyone else was perceiving it.、And、that was sort of nice. Like it's、mm. hard because you have to overcome the, the lack of interaction and the lack of, you know, normally everyone's sat up looking and watching and really awe inspired,、mm. but you just have to assume they are this time. Well, if you can't see them, you can actually decide that they're sat at home in their pants. <laughs> It's up to you. You、yeah. don't have to imagine it like you would in a room. <laughs> yeah. Well, and actually, the reality is they, they may well be. Well, I'm、know. sure, I said, I'm sure if they'd booked in to watch you, they were probably sat at home in their pants. <laughs> wow. Well, well, on that, if you、um, would like to follow us, then it's unmistakable. <laughs> don't do it. Not now. We've, like, we've gone mad. <laughs> no, leave it a week. Leave it a week. Then come back to us and follow us、uh, at Unmistakables on whatever platform you choose to follow us on. Thanks very much. Goodbye.
Speak Easier podcast by The Unmistakable. 